Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Health Podcast, a new season from BBC Good Food. I'm Tracy Ray, Qualified Nutritionist and Health Editor here at BBC Good Food. In this series, I'll be your host as we explore the world of health and wellness through a series of interviews with renowned and innovative experts across the globe, where I'll be seeking out some of the best practical tips and advice they have to offer. Remember that all content provided here is for informational purposes only. If you have any questions or concerns related to your personal health, you should first seek the advice of your local healthcare practitioner. week, we're talking all things hormonal health. Joining me today is functional hormone nutritionist Kay Alley. Along with supporting clients to optimize their hormonal health in her London-based clinic, Kay has given talks up and down the country helping to re-educate and empower women about how to successfully manage their hormones. She is the official nutritionist behind the luxury supplement range at the beauty brand Beauty Pie, as well as founder of the hormone-friendly multi-purpose sanitizer at Labology 3. Hi Kay, welcome to the podcast. So lovely to have you here. Hi Tracy, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to get chatting. So I know the world of hormones. I'm honestly, I've been looking forward to this all week because I get to indulge in two of my favorite things, hormones and food. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. Music to my ears. So 
I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your story and how it is that you became interested in the area of hormonal health. So, gosh, oh, we're going way back now. Um, How do I even share my story without giving away my age? Um, (laughs) So back when I was 15, which is about 18 years ago, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a hormonal condition or disorder that's characterized by elevated androgens. So androgens being the term that we use to class your male, so-called male sex hormones. Most of us are familiar with testosterone. And it's also characterized by cysts on your ovaries, um, which are actually um, developed and matured follicles. Um, And some of the symptoms that you experience are uh, weight gain, irregular periods, Mm. painful periods, acne, excessive facial and body hair, as well as hair loss as well. And I experienced a lot of those symptoms. So when I was 15, my doctor tested me and he said, yep, you've got this. And I suppose back then there was very little talk about women's health issues, much less something like PCOS. Mm. And he was actually, you know, a, a lovely, a lovely doctor, but quintessentially, um, elderly. Um, and, and, you know, he said to me, there's nothing you can do about it. We don't know what's caused it. Um, The best thing that you can do is go on the contraceptive pill Mm. and you won't know whether you can have a baby until you start trying. But the good news is Victoria Beckham's got it and she's got two kids. So there's still (laughs) hope. And that's stuck with me. I know, I know. Um, And you know, when you're 15 years old and you receive that kind of news, I mean, baby making is nowhere near on your radar. Yeah, but But it's still overwhelming to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you know, I was basically facing the prospect of worrying for 15 years as to whether or not I could have a child. And I just, I remember leaving that appointment with my mother with a prescription for Dianet, which is a contraceptive pill, which I took for a number of years on and off. Mm. Um, But just feeling so dissatisfied and also stressed out because Mm. there I was a 15 year old, you know, young girl going through the normal things that most teens go through, but also like, experiencing very erratic periods that, Mm. you know, would disappear for six months for a stretch of time. And then they'd literally hit me like a ton of bricks in terms of the pain and agony that I'd be on. Absolutely. So I I just wanted, I remember craving some sort of control and Mm. also knowledge and understanding of what's going on with my body, what could I do about it if there was anything that I could do? And that really thrusted me at a very young age into alternative healthcare. Okay. Um, and actually, what I didn't realize at the time was I started cycle syncing, which mm. is essentially mapping your symptoms and just how you're feeling, what you're experiencing, and as well as where you're at with your cycle Mm. um, um, at the time. And I noticed very early on that there was a really strong correlation with lifestyle factors. So for example, whenever I'd go through an exam period where there's heightened stress, Mm. my period would disappear for a good eight months solid. And then when I'd go on holiday, then it would miraculously appear when I didn't want it to. So I instantly noticed that my lifestyle had a direct impact on my uh, periods. Um, And this ultimately led me down a path of, you know, researching and looking into and actually working with a nutritional therapist where I ultimately, you know, sought to train in it myself and and do the work that I, that I do today. Amazing. And so 
just in terms of those early days when you're kind of because I'm thinking about a 15 year old young woman that's getting almost kind of thrust into the world of thinking about things like fertility and hormonal health almost prematurely because of this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, in terms of when you say you you started kind of looking at the lifestyle measures and you were kind of reading up and things, was this something that was instinctively coming to you or, you know, were were you kind of making friends with Google or kind of how did how did that go? A bit of both, a yeah. bit of both. So my mum, bless her soul, was very, you know, traditional of her generation, which was that you don't really talk about your menstrual cycle. You kind of suck it up and you deal with it. Yeah. And, you know, so um, I, I very much felt this just overwhelm of not knowing when my period was coming. And I mm. think naturally that led me to just start logging when my period started and any symptoms that I was experiencing with it in between. Yeah. And then, you know, when my next period would start. Yeah. So that was very intuitive. And then alongside that, I literally became Google's best friend. Yeah. And was just searching, you know, anything that I could, finding resources um, where I could learn a little bit more. And that's where I ultimately found my practitioner at the time who helped me identify some more underlying biochemical imbalances that were really driving the PCOS that, that I had. Mm -hmm. And I just at that at that point, I had to know more, you know, and, and, you know, it just became fascinated with the female body and how food really impacts our hormones. Absolutely. And so we're going to get into some more of the specifics in a minute around kind of uh, cycle syncing and the, the kind of dietary support and things like that. But I guess just as an introduction to, to people who are less familiar, both with the topic of hormonal health, but also with the topic of hormonal health as it relates to our diet and lifestyle. Um, could you tell us a little bit, you know, why does hormonal health matter? Why is it important? Okay. So before I do that, I think I'm going to dial back a little bit and, and, mm -hmm. and just explain what the hormonal system is. Okay. We, perfect. you know, we, we call it the endocrine system and it's basically a network of organs that work together to produce hormones that deliver messages to cells ultimately telling the cell how to function. So a really quick, simple anatomy lesson. Um, you know, in the brain, you have the hypothalamus, which is considered the grandmaster of your endocrine system. And that stimulates your pituitary, which is a gland in the brain that has the ability to produce and secrete a series of different hormones that ultimately influence other hormonal organs. So that'll be your gonads. So in males, that's your testes. In women, that's your ovaries. Um, your thyroid gland, which is responsible for regulating the metabolism of every cell in the body. And then of course, your adrenals, which sit above your uh, kidneys and are responsible for producing hormones that help you manage your stress response. Mm. Um, now, in terms of the female cycle, the way that works, um, again, indulge me in like a, a year nine biology class here, um, your hypothalamus stimulates your pituitary and your pituitary produces a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone. Mm. It's abbreviated as FSH. 
And by about day three of your cycle, day one being the start of your period, that really gets to work. Mm. Um, And what that does is it targets follicles in your ovaries and initiates the process of maturing them. Mm-hmm. And it'll, it'll target a cluster of those follicles. Now, in the process of doing that, cells on those follicles start to produce testosterone. And the testosterone is converted into estrogen. Now, um, so by about day three up until day 14, approximately give or take, it varies from woman to woman, um, estrogen really starts to gain momentum and it reaches its peak around day 14. That signals to the brain to release another hormone called luteinizing hormone, which is released by the pituitary gland. And what that does is it targets the most mature follicle on your ovary and causes it to rupture Hmm. and it releases an egg. Now, what fascinates me the most is that the little sack that the egg was released from within about 12 hours has the ability to completely reorganize itself into a completely new organ in the female body with its own blood supply. And we call it the corpus luteum, which is just fascinating. Mm. Um, And this little organ is what produces most of the progesterone, which is another key hormone in um, our cycle. Um, And progesterone reaches its peak post-ovulation around day 25. Now, I mentioned earlier that hormones are like text messages, or I like, sorry, I like to think of um, your endocrine system as your internal telephone network, Mm. because ultimately hormones communicate to your cells telling them what to do, right? Um, And so in this way, I like to think of each hormone as a text message. Yeah. Um, And each hormone has its own specialist number that it dials into when it gets to a target cell and that's Mm. how it delivers its message and we use the term receptors that is um to represent that now in terms of estrogen's role it the message that it delivers is grow this cell yeah so when we look at the female anatomy um when estrogen starts to be produced at higher amounts, it stimulates cells that line the uterus, um, we call it the endometrium, to grow so that you have this lovely, thick, rich blood supply so that by the time you've ovulated, if pregnancy happens, so if that egg becomes fertilized, there's a really lovely, rich, thick blood supply for that egg to become implanted. Mm. And then progesterone's message is maintain and uphold this cell so that you can, you know, uphold and sustain the pregnancy to full term. Mm. Now, of course, if that egg isn't fertilized, what tends to happen after about day five, update, sorry, day 25, is both progesterone and estrogen slowly decline, which signals the body to produce another hormone-like chemical, which we call prostaglandins. Mm-hmm. And they result in your uterus muscle contracting and they cause the lining of your uterus to shed. And so you experience your bleed and that signals the first day of your next cycle. Mm. So that's kind of a nutshell of like the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of your hormones throughout the menstrual cycle. Now to answer your question, why is this important? Well, at school, Tracy, you probably were taught the same as I was, which is that this is all about reproduction and this is, yeah. And this is what, you know, needs to happen in order for you to have a baby. And the problem with that is when you're taught that, you know, in your early teens, you then kind of shut it off. 
because you're like, well, I don't want a baby anytime soon. So I don't need to think about it until I'm ready. Mm. But the reality is when you actually look at the female body, those specialist numbers or those receptors, you find not just in reproductive organs, you'll find them throughout the body. So they're in the brain, bone tissue, you even have them on the pancreas um, impacting digestion. In fact, they're so important beyond reproductive health that um, a group of researchers in Germany Mm. actually um, discovered that our hippocampus, which is a region in the brain that is responsible for our emotions and also our memory, grows and shrinks every month in sync with the rise and fall of estrogen in our menstrual cycle. Incredible. Isn't it just? I mean, I talk about this every day, like eight times a day minimum. Mm. And it's every time I say it, it gives me goosebumps because it just demonstrates the power of our sex hormones beyond our reproductive health. Exactly. And I think it's really interesting the the perspective you you gave there in terms of oftentimes um, when we are being educated on the hormonal system, the emphasis really is on that reproductive aspect. And I think a lot of us can kind of wander through life only really thinking about um, our hormones as it relates to reproduction, maybe a little bit of PMS discomfort if we experience that until eventually we might reach the years of of menopause. But, you know, before that, it's all about reproduction. And I think until you get to that point, you know, of of deciding to to reproduce, you don't really think about um, anything to do with, you know, health or balance of hormones, or even that that's a thing that you need to be thinking of. Absolutely. And it's it's quite a slippery slope as well, because, mm. because when you think of um, your sex hormones in this way, in such a confined way, you don't connect the dots in yes. terms of what you might be experiencing and other symptoms that you might be experiencing that may well be pegged to what's going on with your hormones. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is an area that I'm super passionate about. Um, and actually, I came up with an analogy to help women understand the shifts in their body in a really empowering way. It's a little bit cliche, but it works. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I to, to, to just demonstrate how we, um, the shifts in our hormones actually make us embody different personalities and personas Mm. um I came up with the concept of hormone heroines heroines because it's it's that it's that powerful yeah um so day one to about day seven which is whilst you're menstruating we Mm -hmm. tend to exhibit uh uh, characteristics that are similar to batwoman Mm -hmm. and so when we look at our sex hormones during this time they're all pretty much at their lowest point. And therefore we're a lot more withdrawn. We're a lot quieter. We're we're not as sociable. We kind of want to keep ourselves to ourselves or just Mm. if we can get away with it, stay in our duvets. And then when that follicle stimulating hormone gets to work and estrogen starts to rise, it pulls us out of our batwoman phase into Mm. what I like to call our catwoman phase. Uh, And that's actually, estrogen has the ability to influence how we make serotonin. So serotonin is a neurotransmitter and it's dubbed the happy hormone. Mm -hmm. It's it's our chill pill. It's our natural chill pill. um, And it helps us manage with stress. So if you're making healthy amounts of estrogen, you're really supporting indirectly 
your ability to make serotonin. And so it naturally follows that as estrogen rises in your cycle, you're mm. feeling a lot better. Yeah. You're feeling like you can manage a lot more work. If, and most women can identify this without even understanding the science. You know, when, when you tune into your body mm-hmm. and, you know, you're, you've got a lot more energy as well. Yeah. And that's because um, estrogen has the ability to modulate a cell. It's called the pancreatic islet beta cell, mm-hmm. which is responsible for making and releasing insulin. Now, of course, insulin is another hormone that um, helps us manage our blood sugar levels and therefore our energy. Yes. And so if if estrogen is able to modulate this cell, it can really help us manage our insulin response and help us to sustain our energy, which is why after your period, you're literally bouncing off women, uh, bouncing off women, after <laughs> your period, you're literally bouncing Amazing. off walls. Yeah. Like Catwoman. Yeah. Um, so, and, sorry, sorry, Kate, just to, just for anyone that is thinking back to their, their days of school biology. Um, yeah. So when you're talking about that Batwoman phase, you're referring to the menstrual phase of the that's cycle. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So that's whilst you're on your period and you're, and you're bleeding, which yeah. lasts anything from one to seven days. Some women it's three days. Um, we all have kind of a normal um, length of time mm. um, um, that's very unique to us. Um, and then, so once you go through your catwoman phase mm-hmm. um, and you ovulate for yes. one day only, you get to be one Wonder Woman, and that's because <laughs> <laughs> that's because both estrogen and testosterone at ovulation are at their absolute highest, mm. and as a result, your libido skyrockets. Your body basically wants you to get pregnant. Yeah. So you feel like a sexual prowess, you feel really strong and confident and you feel amazing. But sadly, it is only for one day. Um, and then as your body starts to produce progesterone, it pulls you into what I call your She-Hulk phase. And yeah. just like She-Hulk, you feel a lot heavier, a lot bigger, and you can also be temperamental as well. Mm. So I mentioned how as progesterone, uh, sorry, estrogen influences serotonin production the hippocampus shrinks as estrogen declines yeah but it, the same also holds for progesterone as well progesterone also plays a role in serotonin production as well which is why once we've ovulated and after about 5 days or so from ovulation we can become a little bit more sensitive mm-hmm. or a little bit more temperamental now of course that's not to um, you know, illegitimize anyone's concern if they're dealing with someone that's actually deserves being snapped back at. Yeah. But, you know, our temperament is a little bit, is a little bit shorter due to the changes that occur with our neurotransmitters and also our brain chemistry as well. Um, and I think there's also a, a point worth making with regards to She-Hulk and our appetite. I stumbled across a really interesting study that was published uh, by the International Journal of Eating Disorders. I think it was published in 2011, but don't hold me to that. Um, But these researchers basically sought out to um, look at whether there is an association with our ovarian hormone output Mm -hmm. and our eating habits. And they concluded that there was a positive association with progesterone production and an increased appetite. Yes. Um, And there was a negative association with estrogen output and our appetite. Mm -hmm. So what that basically means is that when you are she-hulking, or I like to call it hulking, 
it's normal that your appetite increases and that you want to eat more food mm-hmm. um, because that's one of the physiological responses from progesterone. Mm-hmm. And we're not taught this. No one talks about it. And so what tends to happen is we beat ourselves up. Absolutely. About one- I, I, I mean, think- I... I, sorry, I, I think just, you know, it's so interesting the way you, when you're talking about that hormonal cycle and relating those hormonal fluctuations to how we might feel. Um, because I think often, again, because of the, the education that we get on the hormonal cycle, we're often kind of made to feel that if I do feel tired or energetic or if I feel more hungry some days and less hungry other days that there's something wrong with me or I'm imbalanced in some way but what I hear you saying is that it's quite normal to have you know some fluctuations throughout our our cycle completely you've hit the nail on the head there Tracy and actually it touches on one of the biggest issues that we have in terms of mass communication around Mm. food and nutrition and diet culture yeah a lot of the nutritional science that we have presumes that we have one biological clock which is most of us know as the circadian rhythm yes So this 24-hour clock, which its pacemakers are essentially cortisol. So cortisol is a stress hormone that actually helps us jump out of bed in the morning. And it slowly winds down in the evening. And um, that's mirrored with melatonin increasing, which which is another hormone that helps us get a good night's sleep. Mm. Um, And the reason why a lot of the nutritional science that we have that informs a lot of diet culture presumes that we all operate just with this one biological rhythm is because the studies themselves are primarily conducted on men. men. Yeah, yeah. They don't menstruate. Yes. Uh, And, you know, your menstrual cycle is a second biological rhythm. It's actually known Mm. as the infradian rhythm. Yeah. And it's a 30-day cycle approximately. I mean, it ranges from 25 to about 35 days for most Mm. women. And the pacemakers of that are your sex hormones. And, you know, I've illustrated how progesterone impacts your appetite. And, you know, um, um, so does um, estrogen. Estrogen impacts your insulin response. So, you know, a lot of these studies that are used to, you know, promote a certain way of eating presumes that we feel the same day in, day out on that 24-hour clock Mm. when we don't, which is such a huge injustice on women because the outcome of that is that many of us are like, okay, I want to be health conscious. I want to do something great for my body. I'm going Mm. to try this new lifestyle, whether that's intermittent fasting or a keto diet or an Atkins diet, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, And what tends to happen is if you start it on around day one of your cycle, at best, you'll be able to stick at it easy breezy for about two weeks. Yeah. The second ovulation happens, you feel like you are going against the grain inside of your body. And that's where slip ups happen. Mm. And it also, I think you're putting yourself in a position to spike those cortisol levels even further, which is can only have a knock on effect to the balance of your other hormones. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. That gives a really clear understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about that hormonal cycle. And I must say, personally, I really enjoy the application of the heroines as opposed to just hearing <laughs> uh, menstrual phase, luteal phase, follicular yeah. phase, a lot more exciting. Um, I mean, you can relate to it, right? Because exactly. we've, we've all gone through that 
period in our life or in the month where we want to eat the house down, where we're yes. like double the portion size, make sure it's carby and bring it with a side of chocolate exactly. and don't judge. Exactly. And I, I, I call that hulking. I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm hulking at the minute. It's not going to last. When my period starts, it's going to shift. Now, obviously there's something to also be said about cravings. Yes. So yeah. there's a difference between in terms of how our hormones impact our diet, in terms of appetite, but also they also impact our cravings mm. too. So I think before we go on to um, cravings, if I could just ask you a little bit about cycle syncing um, mm -hmm. and how that works in relation to kind of diet and lifestyle mm -hmm. um, when it comes to balancing our hormones. Um, and then we might move into kind of okay. more of the specifics if that's okay. Yeah, so cycle syncing is essentially logging your menstrual cycle. Yeah. So it's as simple as marking in your diary. And there are so many apps now that you can use um, that really help make it a lot easier mm. where you mark, you know, the first day of your period. Um, and um, when you have a sufficient amount of data of that, the app's can start to make predictions in terms of your ovulation yeah. uh, period. But you can kind of guess roughly for the majority that your ovulation occurs um, about 14 days from the start of your period. Yeah. Um, and so you can kind of map that also into your diary if you're mm -hmm. doing it in the old fashioned way and not using an app. You, what you also want to do in terms of cycle syncing is map your mood yeah. and any symptoms that you might be noticing. Mm -hmm. So it might be, oh, I've noticed that I'm bloated. Oh, wow, look at that. It's around ovulation. Yeah. Or I've noticed that I'm a lot more snappy or I'm feeling really temperamental. Oh, I'm a couple of days out from, from my period. Mm. Um, and it really allows you, I always encourage my clients to approach it in this kind of small way because otherwise it can feel really overwhelming yeah again for anyone listening a lot of the apps that you're you're mentioning you know they're they're quite uh integrative now in the sense that yeah. you can you can map the days but you can also just like select the different images for the different kind of symptoms emotions. and things that you have yeah. and the emotions so I find them um quite quite easy to to use and kind of very easy to track and things so just to put it out there because I think sometimes the idea at least for me it's like oh my god not another thing on my to-do list <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's quite a, a simple thing to kind of just dot in Absolutely. I mean, obviously you can be a little bit more detailed if you want to, if you're mm. an absolute hormone geek, like perhaps you or I, <laughs> yeah. and you really want the data. The other thing that you can do that's really, really helpful in terms of understanding and working out when you might be ovulating is take a basal um, body temperature yeah. reading first thing in the morning. Now mm. with that, I have to caveat and say that if you suffer with insomnia or broken sleep, the science behind that is very, very poor. It won't accurately reflect um, your um, ovulation period. And what tends to happen is you will notice that your basal uh, body temperature will literally skyrocket at ovulation and that's indicative of the fact that you've just ovulated and mm. so it can really help to fine-tune your um, cycle and understand where where you're at mm. um, and then so some of the symptoms that you would um, log are your emotions your appetite um, any aches and pains or anything any um, physical appearances that you might might have noticed like drier skin mm. or my skin looks amazing today that sort of thing um, and you just take it from there 
Amazing. That's that's really interesting. And that's really useful to know about some of those caveats as well in terms of, you know, if you are suffering from some sleep issues, that might be something you need to look at before using yeah. the, the method of, of uh, basal temperature. Wow. So then moving towards diet. Um, and so we know how the hormone cycle works. We know that in order to kind of I guess, familiarize ourselves with our hormone cycle and actually kind of make friends with it. Because honestly, um, I know so many females well into their adulthood that, um, you know, honestly have no idea how it works. Um, I think we collectively, a lot of us are in that boat. Um, So I think making friends with it, understanding it, getting in tune with it, there's no shame there's no shame in you know admitting that you don't know oh my no you know the first day of your cycle for example yeah it's this is an empowering journey you're Mm. getting to know your body better and your hormones better so yeah I like the term making friends with your cycle I might have to steal that so then moving on to the part of okay we know we know what's what's happening we know what's happening in our bodies um what can we do to, I guess, first of all, as a baseline, supporting mm-hmm. hormonal health, what are some of those those dietary things that we might want to consider? Is it yeah. fat? Is it protein? Is it carbohydrates? Is it no fat? Is it no protein? <laughs> um, what do we kind of want to look at in terms of that baseline supporting hormonal health? Yeah, so I'm an advocate that your diet should incorporate all of the macronutrients in mm. there. So a distribution of fats, protein and carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Now you can tweak it slightly, but I think one thing that I'll start off with saying is that all of your major sex hormones are made from fat, Mm -hmm. more specifically cholesterol. Yes. Now, um, and the type that we term as bad cholesterol, LDL, which I think is a pretty unfair name (laughs) to give it, given that it makes all of your major sex hormones. Yeah. Um, Now, of course, your liver has the ability to produce um, cholesterol, for you so that your body can use it to make your sex hormones. So it goes without saying that, you know, you have a natural ability to support this. But if you are severely restricting your fat intake Mm -hmm. um, long-term, this can negatively impact your ability to make your own sex hormones. And we see this clinically with Mm -hmm. individuals that have a long-standing history with an eating disorder, yeah. as, as an example, things like anorexia nervo- nervosa, where, you know, there's this extreme calorie restriction of which fat has, you know, is completely restricted from the diet. Mm. It absolutely has, you know, will prevent your body from making your sex hormones. So one thing that I always um, encourage women is don't be afraid of fats. Mm. You know, you need them. Your body uses them to make your hormones. Your best sources are always going to be you know, wholesome sources direct from uh, uh, the ground, if you like, or from our planet. My favorite, of course, is um, omega-3 from oily fish. Mm -hmm. Um, And also um, eggs are an amazing source of fats as well. They're a great source of choline, which are really, really important for fertility um, as well. And of course, nuts and seeds can be a great source of healthy fats you to consume and incorporate into your diet. Now, there is a bit of a trend in terms of seed cycling. I don't know whether you've heard of that, Tracy, before. I've heard the term going around, yes. It's it's a slightly controversial term, I have to have to admit, mm. because 
you know, the, the concept around it is that you incorporate one to two tablespoons of flax seeds and raw pumpkin seeds from mm-hmm. days one to 14 of your cycle. And then once you've ovulated, you switch over to one to two tablespoons of sunflower seeds yeah. and sesame seeds. Now, the reason why it's a bit controversial is it is by no means an exact science yeah. at all. You know, if you were to punch into Medline seed cycling, nothing's going to come up. Yeah. Um, but that being said, the, the concept behind it is that it's one encouraging you to get more really good, healthy sources of Mm. fats in there. And they also deliver some really key nutrients that support, um, you know, ovulation um, and our monthly cycle um, too. So it's just a really nice, easy tip that you can incorporate into your your menstrual cycle. Yeah. And I think even, you know, the idea of, you know, seed cycling aside, the idea of, you know, adding things like a lot of those kind of flax seeds, walnuts, pumpkin seeds, you know, you're getting those great fats, lots of nutrients, but you're also getting that fiber, which, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to say, you know, is so important to support our um, process of elimination in the body for kind of processing out um, hormones. I mean, in terms of in terms of um, hormones and and the impact that food has with our hormones, there's hormone production, which I've kind of just covered in terms of the, the importance of of fats. Yeah. There's hormone communication and how certain nutrients can support that or interfere with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's hormone detoxification yeah. as well. And there are certain foods that are really beneficial for that, which I'm sure we'll get into. Mm-hmm. But just something else that I think is really worth mentioning with regards to the importance of fats for your hormones. Um, I'm um, I'm really used to seeing a lot of women that hit menopause and they're like, oh my gosh, what's happening to my body? Yes. And what tends to happen with this story or phase of life is they will go to their doctor who will run a routine blood test and their LDL will literally skyrocket. It'll be thrown out of balance. And one of the proposed hypotheses is that because um, in a menopausal woman's body, you're no longer producing optimal amounts of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone as a result of the decline of your eggs. Mm-hmm. Your liver is trying to compensate for that by producing more LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think, in my personal view, why LDL tends to be a raised biomarker with most women going through menopause. And so... Um, if that's you, I one of the things that I would um, recommend is remember that LDL is only a risk factor for cardiovascular diseases once it's oxidized. Mm. And so it's really beneficial if you're going through menopause to support your body through incorporating a lot of antioxidant-rich foods. So mm. that's, that's the cliche, eat the rainbow. Fruits get and vegetables. In, absolutely. Get <laughs> in as much fruits and vegetables and get the variety in terms mm. of color. Because if you consider, for example, when you're eating greens, you're getting chlorophyll, mm-hmm. which is, you know, functions as an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. When you choose things like blueberries or the skins on aubergines, you're getting anthocyanins, which is a plant chemical, which also functions as an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. Um, when you choose red 
fruits and vegetables like tomatoes or bell peppers, you're getting lycopene, which is also an antioxidant. Mm. Then you've got orange, which is beta carotene, which is a pre-vitamin A, which is also an antioxidant. So the more variety of color that you can incorporate into your diet, if you're going through menopause, um, the more you you may um, help offset the risk factors with raised LDL. Mm. That's really great advice, actually. And I think, you know, um, kind of, practical and even though it's not a generalized science I think sometimes some of these generalized recommendations like fruits and vegetables um there's not many cases um unless it's a specialist condition where if you're increasing your fruits and vegetables that you're going to go too far wrong so I think that's kind of a a simple first step that people can think when okay this is this is what I'm going to do Exactly. Mm. And I just wanted to, I, I do want to, to move away from fats because I'm conscious that I'm sure both of us <laughs> could probably talk about fats alone for five yeah. hours. <laughs> um, but I did want to kind of mention and get your perspective um, because, you know, absolutely, there are many valid reasons why one might need to be careful around their fat intake. Yep. Um, and often that will be... Um, discovered clinically um but in my experience while I know that we've we've moved quite far away from the the very severe kind of low fat recommendations I do still find that sometimes there is that fear around fat even though we are hearing more about the importance of fat I think internally there's still a little bit of that um let's be honest a little bit of that oh god if I eat fat I'm going to gain weight yeah um you know and I think for a lot of people that can be a consideration and I just wanted you to speak a little bit on on your experience of um maybe helping clients to include fats in in their diet what the reality of um the outcomes that you're seeing because I know that um I, again, when I used to work clinically, helping um, people, particularly women going through hormonal issues, getting more healthy fats in their diet, it's a completely different um, outcome than you might expect. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I've definitely seen a a similar um, attitude, let's say, around um, fats in my clinic as well. And I think you've really raised an important point that's worth uh, making. Your body processes and uses fats differently to um, carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, they both have the ability to be a source of energy. And it's when you have excessive amounts of fat with excessive amounts of carbohydrates that you are more likely to experience the weight gain Mm -hmm. because it's energy overload. Yes. You're giving yourself too much. Um, And one of the things that I always try and encourage and coach with my clients is that days one to 14 of your cycle, so that first half of your cycle, Mm -hmm. naturally you crave carbohydrates less. And you crave carbohydrates less because as I mentioned, estrogen helps you to manage that insulin response a lot better. So your Mm -hmm. energy is a lot more sustainable. And so I always say lean into that. Yes. You know, cut back a little bit on your carbohydrates. You still want it in your diet Mm -hmm. and go for, you know, fattier cuts of meat. If you eat meat, you know, oily fish or, um, you know, other fats, sources of fats like avocado, olives, Mm -hmm. um, to compensate for what you're cutting back on the carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Once you've ovulated and naturally that metabolic shift 
changes, what you then want to do is scale back slightly on the fat Mm -hmm. to accommodate for your increased appetite and cravings for carbohydrates as well. But it's, it's usually the combination of high carbs and high fat that leads to weight gain um, that most women worry about as opposed to, you know, just eating high fat or just eating high carbs, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think you're, you're touching on something very interesting there in terms of, you know, I think when you do lean into checking in with yourself and just kind of checking in with how do I feel today? Um, often you can actually feel that some days I'm less hungry than other days or some days I'm really craving something fatty or some days I'm craving something with a lot of protein or carbs. Um, And I think that um, it's a really interesting message that we don't often hear a lot because um, we're kind of trained sometimes, I think, to think, okay, I need to have this diet and this amount of calories and, you know, this amount of protein, carbs, fats, whatever. And it it has to look exactly the same every day. Um, But when you're talking about hormones and that kind of cyclical piece, we're not, you're not talking about, you know, cutting massive amounts of calories or food groups or anything between the days, but rather, you know, if you're craving a whole bunch of spinach one day then go for it but if the next day you know you really just want a bowl of you know rice with some meat on top and maybe a drizzle of olive oil you know it's it's okay sometimes to have that little bit of 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 up and down and it might even be supportive I yeah that's exactly it and I think this this is why starting with the cycle syncing is really important because it helps you put that all into context mm. in terms of where you are and just thinking about which hormone heroin you're yes. currently, you know, embodying. And then you're you're able to almost immediately dissipate any guilt or like cognitive dissonance that you might be experiencing based mm. off from what you hear in mass communication or mass culture mm. um, and, and versus what you ultimately feel. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very empowering, you know, thing to, to start practicing. And it honestly, it gives you food freedom. Yeah. Well, it almost, I mean, it almost feels a little bit exciting because I often think when it comes to health and nutrition and again, not to go back to the the clinical days, but I think often people can kind of like arrive into your office thinking, oh, they're going to make me carrots and not do anything fun. And this is going to be awful. Um, But I think, you know, hearing you speak, there's actually something quite exciting about the idea of, yeah, I'm really craving, um, you know, carbohydrates or, you know, yeah, that that's in line with um, my cycle because I'm actually eating a little bit more fat, but that makes sense to me. And I think that almost makes it more of a positive, uplifting experience. And that's what it's supposed to be. I mm. mean, my goodness, food is one of life's most simple pleasures. Mm. And, I, and I, th- I really think that it's the fact that, you know, most diets that are recommended omit menstruating women from their research that has created this gap and this disconnect. Whereas now, you know, practitioners like myself that are saying, actually, 
you know, we're missing a key thing here, this infradian rhythm and the mm. metabolic shifts that we experience mm-hmm. on a 30 day cycle. Women are just literally rejoicing like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. <laughs> and, you know, I'm free and this is what my body's been telling me all this time. And I suppose it's what we we now term intuitive eating. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, let's dive right into carbohydrates because okay. again, I think as with fats, um, where we do see a lot, actually, I think particularly at the moment, there's been a lot of research, particularly around like diabetes, kind of blood yeah. sugar balance. We're seeing the introduction of a lot of low carb diets, even keto diet being kind of severely low carb. Yeah. And again, there is evidence um, and there's a time and place where um, they might be clinically applied. Exactly. Um, But I think in terms of when we're talking a little bit um, more expansively and particularly as it pertains to hormonal balance in your area of expertise, what's the deal with carbs? Just tell me all about it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, where do we even begin? Um, So to your point about there are some clinical applications where a specific diet like a keto diet might be beneficial, I do think it's important to acknowledge with insulin resistance PCOS yeah. Um, you know, going on a low carbohydrate diet or a moderate carbohydrate diet rather can be beneficial. Mm. But I do think that, you know, if there is anyone listening to this that has insulin resistant PCOS, it should be a conversation that's had in a clinical setting to 100%. help coach, you know, the 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 scale back of carbohydrates and the types of carbohydrates that you're eating. Because ultimately you really want to be reintroducing and building them back into your diet once you've managed to resolve um, your imbalance. Absolutely. Um, and I think, but, pers- sorry, just to just to add to that again, to, to anyone listening, I mean, you've probably heard me harp on about this all the time, but I think it's really important to remember that while there is a lot of information available out there, when you are getting to the nitty gritty of applications of specific diets for specific conditions, like keto, like low carb, like, mm-hmm. you know, high protein, anything like that, it really should be done in a clinical setting. I agree 100%. Okay. Um, so what's the deal with carbohydrates? Yes. We need them. We need them, especially post ovulation. Mm-hmm. And here's why. There's a couple of mechanisms at play. Um, so first things first, hormone detoxification, my favorite area when it comes to hormone balance. And so it's, I mean, look, this is the basics of it. There's three major steps. Mm -hmm. We call the first step phase one, liver detoxification. And it's akin to throwing your hormones into a black plastic bag. Now there are three different ways that you can throw the hormones into a black plastic bag, but I don't want to get too technical. So I'm going to try and keep it really simple. Phase two is tying up that black plastic bag. And again, that's conducted by your liver. Mm -hmm. And then phase three is throwing that out in your stools, urine and sweat. Yes. And what tends to happen or what I've seen is women might read up on hormone detoxification and hear that all broccoli is really good for phase one. I'm going to eat loads of broccoli. Yeah. Broccoli is really good for phase one, but you don't want to do that if your phase two or your phase three are sluggish. So in terms of supporting hormone detoxification, you actually want to work 
backwards. You want to make sure that you're evacuating your stools daily. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you're, you're getting really healthy stools that are akin to toothpaste. The lack of a better way of, of describe, describing. No one's it. going to yeah. look at toothpaste the same way, but it's a good description. <laughs> We're going there, Tracy. I'm not <laughs> holding back today. Um, and um, you know, you want to make sure that you're keeping your body hydrated and drinking loads of water, so that you you are eliminating a lot of uh, your hormones that are being detoxified from your urine and also getting movement in so that you're sweating a lot Mm. too. Now, in terms of carbohydrates, of course, carbohydrates are where we get our fiber from. Yes. And in terms of bowel regularity, fiber is really, really key. We Mm -hmm. need to be aiming for that 30 grams of fiber a day, which is why incorporating carbohydrates into your diet that are natural sources, high sources of of fiber are really, really important for um, optimal hormone balance Mm -hmm. as far as hormone detoxification um, goes. The other reason why carbohydrates are really important in terms of the hormonal picture is with regards to phase two detoxification. Mm -hmm. So before your liver can dump your hormones out into your stools or your urine, it's got to make it water soluble. Yes. And there's a process. The term is called glucuronidation. Mm -hmm. And as the name suggests, it's got glucose in there. Glucose is involved in this process. Again, you get glucose primarily from carbohydrates. So there's a lot of fear at the moment around carbohydrates and weight gain. Again, it comes out, I think, of a lot of the literature that's coming out from a keto diet. But Mm. in terms of the female body, your body needs fiber from carbs and your liver needs glucose from carbs as well, which means that you've got to incorporate it in. Now, of course, not all carbohydrates are the same. <laughs> so, you know, you've so got you're not re- talking chocolate chip cookies then? <laughs> Unfortunately not. I mean, maybe the odd, maybe the odd chocolate chip cookie Definitely. is fine, but not in excess. <laughs> um, so yeah, you really want to be going, I mentioned you want to be going for Uh, carbohydrates that are high in fiber, they're Mm -hmm. slow releasing. So that's your beans, your lentils, your chickpeas, your brown rice, and your whole grain, Mm -hmm. whole grains as well. And of course, um, vegetables are also a great um, carbohydrate um, too. So um, you want to incorporate that into your diet, um, especially post-ovulation. It's beneficial. The other mechanism that I just want to chew your ear off about, um, again, it's a hypothesis. So indulge me. Um, I mentioned earlier that estrogen and progesterone play a pivotal role in serotonin production. Yes. And about we know that about 95% of serotonin is produced in the gastrointestinal tract mm-hmm. and it crosses the blood-brain barrier where it exerts its physiological functions on the brain, influencing our mood. Mm-hmm. Now, the transport vehicle that it goes from the gut to the brain is insulin. Mm-hmm. So, and again, insulin is the hormone that we release in response to glucose consumption Mm -hmm. or carbohydrate consumption. So one of the proposed mechanisms as to why we crave carbs and crave, you know, sugary foods post-ovulation is because as our progesterone and estrogen decline in the run-up to our period, that that week lead up to our period, Mm -hmm. our serotonin levels might dip. Yeah. And so the brain's mechanism to compensate for that is, oh, let's trigger a craving for carbs Mm. so that we can release a bit more insulin um, and, you know, get more serotonin from the gut to the brain and, you know, help us manage our stress and our mood a bit better. Mm. 
basically get some more support in bringing all the serotonin up to the brain. <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm always like, if you like chocolate, go for it. Just mm. go for dark chocolate, you know, about 70% cocoa yeah. solids. Yeah. Um, and, you know, give into that craving and sedate your inner she-hulk. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> and there's something to be, there's something to be said, I think, for, you know, giving yourself permission to, to eat what your body is asking for. And I mean, I know that that's a very simplistic way of saying something about a conversation that is so much um, larger and more nuanced. But just in terms of it, it relates to this conversation today, I think there's something very, um, very calming um, and almost self-loving, I think, about um actually eating what your body needs, particularly when you are experiencing symptoms of maybe, you know, hormonal dysregulation or or things like that. Absolutely. And also, you know, when you don't lean into it, what tends to happen, and most of us can relate to this, is we just end up binging mm. even more so mm-hmm. on some of the more refined carbohydrates where we would have had maybe one to two or three blocks of chocolate. We end yeah. up eating the whole bar, if not five. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's about, I think it's about re relearning or rebuilding mm-hmm. our relationship with food, yeah. which gives us understanding of the differences in our body as a result mm-hmm. of our hormones and trusting the process. Yeah. And, and actually on that note, Tracy, women that are going through menopause, what I tend to hear a lot, and I don't know whether you noticed something similar too when back in your clinical days, mm. when women go through menopause, what I tend to hear is, I never used to be a sweet tooth person. Yeah, and you know, and all of a sudden, I'm just craving carbs, mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm, I'm feel like every evening I've got to have something sweet. Yeah, and you know, when you go through menopause, your estrogen levels plummet. Yes, um, and you know, and as a result, you no longer have that extra support, unless mm-hmm. of course you're taking you're being prescribed, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. um, HRT by your doctor, um, but you're no longer naturally receiving that support in terms of insulin Mm -hmm. um, modulation. Mm -hmm. And so you do tend to crave sugars a little bit more as you go through menopause. And the way to offset that is to get ahead of it and give yourself the carbohydrates, just go for the slow releasing complex carbs Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, incorporate a little bit of that into your diet to Mm -hmm. help Mm -hmm. keep it in control. Definitely. And I think you you touched again on on such an important point, because when I when I think about what you said, like my immediate thought was absolutely. And I think also what often came with the increase in in sugar cravings was a lot of guilt and resistance to them, because I think often what a lot of women can also experience um, as they're going through menopause is um, weight gain or differences in metabolism, um, different distributions of weight as all of those hormones are kind of shifting around. Um, And I think the resistance to that as well as the sugar cravings, um, you know, general life stresses. Often the, the first thought can be, oh, if I'm gaining weight or my body's changing, I need to push myself into exercise. So you're further pushing that cortisol <laughs> hormone Wait. up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's actually, that's such a key thing to talk about because 
you know, the natural mechanism of support when your ovaries no longer produce your sex hormones is that your adrenals, which are responsible for producing cortisol, your stress hormone, try to take over, albeit to a much lesser extent. And so when you're piling on the stress as a result of feeling guilty for eating a little bit more carbohydrates than what you Mm. used to, you are not helping the situation at all. So yeah, it's a bit like walking a tightrope, isn't it? Absolutely. And again, I think hearing, you know, hearing this experience and hearing some of this information, hopefully some people can take away a little bit more relief and to to be a little bit kinder and more understanding with themselves if they are also experiencing these things like the increased sugar cravings and and things like that. And, um, you know, maybe to to seek out some some support with that, because there are a lot of a lot of options um, out there. And I think before we completely move on from what you're talking about with detoxification, I just kind of wanted to reemphasize um, that point that you highlighted in terms of, I think we, there's so much information out there and particularly there's a lot of information about, you know, different foods that support the, the detox system and are wonderful. And yes, they they are wonderful and they do have elements that support um, detoxification. But I think what we see clinically and what can happen is that you might be supporting the wrong detoxification phase or you yeah. might be too early and it might be that actually you need to be looking at something else. So um, again, just to kind of re-emphasize if you are experiencing some of these symptoms and things like that, try to seek some clinical support. Yeah. Um, because while a lot of this information is true, the application can vary. So yeah, and, and I think I think just to caveat that and add on to that, in excess. Mm. So most people can have broccoli, you know, exactly. most days, and it's not going to cause issues. Yes. But it's when you perhaps reach for a broccoli supplement that's really powerful. Yes or, you know, you're eating loads of it, you can, you know, wind up feeling worse, worse off if you're not supporting the right pathway. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to work with someone who knows what they're doing and is using the right kind of functional tests to really unlock the areas of support that you need. Mm So not an excuse to not eat your vegetables. Exactly. Just FYI. Get in there and get it in there. (laughs) Still, we still want to see plenty of fruits and vegetables on the plate. You will be okay. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I just think that's a really interesting thing to thing to highlight. So I do need to move towards um, some of our closing questions. But before I I do. Um, I really wanted to quickly turn to the pill for a second. Okay. Um, because I know a lot of women will be wondering about this. Are mm-hmm. there any nutritional considerations that we need mm-hmm. to be making in order to support that? Yeah, I think I think practitioners like myself can sometimes be misunderstood when we're talking about the contraceptive mm. pill or any other hormonal contraceptive. So I just want to, I suppose, preface this by saying that, you know, as women, we cultivate, we gestate and we birth life, which is just pretty badass when you think about it. But if it happens at the wrong time, it has the ability to completely Mm -hmm. hijack our ambitions. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, I think there's a lot of appreciation and gratitude that we can extend to hormonal contraceptives in terms of the advancement for women's lives and the freedom and liberation that it's given us. Mm. And ultimately, whether you're taking a hormonal contraceptive or not is 
the individual's decision and it's very very personalized and I think anyone that's telling you you know your decision is right or wrong I'd say you know you need to kind of heed caution there yes um it's about um you know obtaining as much information so that you can make the best informed decision for yourself Mm -hmm. and I think you know if you are on hormonal contraceptives whether that's the pill or any other form Mm -hmm. it's worth clearing up a couple of misconceptions with it which Mm -hmm. is that if you are experiencing menstruation whilst on the contraceptive Mm -hmm. pill you are not having a period it's a withdrawal bleed and you are suppressing ovulation Um, and so you know sometimes there's a huge misunderstanding there I think the key thing to consider with the hormonal contraceptive pill is that the World Health Organization has acknowledged the clinical relevance of long-term use of the contraceptive pill and potential um, nutrient depletions. Mm -hmm. Um, And those nutrient depletions are folate, Mm -hmm. sometimes referred to as folic acid, which is the synthetic Mm man-made form of folate, vitamin B12, vitamin B6, vitamin C and E, Mm -hmm. selenium and zinc. So if you choose to go on hormonal contraceptives and you're on them for a very long period of time, so, you know, a lot of girls go on them around the age of 16 and, you know, they don't think about family planning until they're in their 30s. That can be a minimum of, you know, 15 years. I think it is important that you are supporting, you're consciously supporting those nutrients Mm. through the foods that you're eating, opting for, you know, sources of foods that are naturally high in those nutrients. And again, going back to seed cycling, Mm -hmm. a lot of those seeds that are incorporated in there are naturally high in all of those nutrients. I forgot to mention magnesium is another key mineral that mm-hmm. is um that was flagged up as being um risk of um nutrient depletions with mm-hmm. long-term use that being said a lot of women are on hormonal contraceptives and they're fine yeah and they come off them without any issue at all Absolutely. but there are yeah there are some women that don't mm-hmm. um, and so i always like to recommend anyone who's on the pill support those nutrients mm-hmm. through your diet first and foremost Dark green leafy vegetables will give you a lot of your B vitamins um, and um, magnesium. Mm-hmm. Beans, again, legumes. Legumes. And, and yeah, they're going to give you, again, all of your B vitamins as well. Um, and then your nuts and seeds, like pumpkins are a great source of zinc. And then Brazil nuts would be your go-to for selenium. selenium. And, you know, if you do find that you you are struggling, maybe you might want to consider like a multivitamin mm-hmm. um, just to support what perhaps you've not yet achieved with your diet. But with that, it's a whole other conversation. Not all supplements are the same. So make Ab- sure, you know, you're going for a really good brand. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, if you're in a place where you're feeling that you might need to look into supplementation, it's always really good to check in with um, your healthcare provider to Absolutely. kind of just really understand yeah. what's right for you. Because, gosh, I think understanding the world of supplements is a whole other degree in and of itself. <laughs> it's <laughs> it a minefield. Um, yeah, and, you know, you can get con- there can be contraindications with medications exactly. as well. So, you know, if you are on medications, you have to get that clearance from your doctor. Absolutely. First. Absolutely. So I'm going to jump into a few of our uh, wind down questions. OK. Um, and I guess the first thing is from your experience seeing clients now over many years, what do you think is one of the biggest barriers to implementing better nutrition practices that you've seen? Oh, wow. 
That's a huge question. Can I be completely honest? Yeah. Lack of self-care or or, or not prioritizing self-care. Interesting. And, 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 you know, because I suppose it's not having boundaries around mm. your self-care mm-hmm. because um, the, a lot of the women that I speak to, and, and, and unfortunately I hate to generalize, but in my experience, yeah. it tends to be a female, a more of a female trait. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to put ourselves last on the list. Yeah. And, you know, even if you speak to girlfriends, you'll hear them say, oh gosh, I completely didn't have lunch today because... Mm-hmm you know, I was so busy at work. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I've, it's it's 8pm and I'm only just having dinner. Yeah. Or 10pm even sometimes, I'm mm-hmm. only just having dinner. Mm-hmm. And I'll go, oh, do, does your kids have, do your kids eat dinner at 10pm as well? Oh, no, never. <laughs> yeah. Why is it okay for you to, to skip meals and eat at 10pm and not your kids? Um, and so I think the, one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we're not prioritizing ourselves and our own self-care mm-hmm. and actually establishing boundaries around areas of life, whether that's work, other commitments, mm-hmm. and taking out time to have your three, at least your three main meals a day. Mm-hmm. It's not a side thought. It's an absolutely necessary thing um, that, you know... That, that you should prioritize. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, if you've, you know, if you've never actually um, created those boundaries or taken the time to prioritize yourself, I think it's hard to understand the profound difference that it can make um, yeah. because it can seem like a really big or Honestly, sometimes I think we feel selfish thing to to put ourselves first. But again, in my experience and talking with friends and family, I think when it's when you take the time to prioritize yourself in little ways that actually oftentimes your resources go go way up because you all all of a sudden have more clarity, have more energy um, have more excitement and joy about doing things. So it, it, exactly, it's that it's that cliche of you can't serve from an empty cup. Yes, yeah. So you need to fill your own cup up first mm-hmm. and make sure it's always topped up so that you've got loads to share with everyone around you. Mm, absolutely, I love that. Um, so a final question for you, and it's a little bit of a wild card, but okay, this is a BBC Good Food podcast, so. <laughs> what would it be if we weren't to talk about cake? And I always think it's really interesting in the context of health. And again, kind of breaking down those barriers or ideas of thinking that health professionals only ever eat salad. Um, (laughs) I'd love to hear from you when you do want to have a cake or a bake or a treat, what's your go-to? Oh my goodness me. I'm like, my brain is trawling through with all of my go-tos. <laughs> There's so many. Um, oh, I really do love a walnut and date cake. Oh, good, good. With a, with a really good cup of coffee. You yes. know, two two things that I'm apparently, you know, not, not allowed to have. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely love a good walnut and date cake. I love it. I love it. But again, in I think in in saying that, you know, you you there, there's a way to still have those enjoyments, yeah. still have your Obviously, bits of coffee. Oh, sorry, Tracy. I was totally being sarcastic when I said that I'm not allowed to have them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, you know, it's it's the eighty twenty rule. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for. 
But thank you, Kay, so, so much for taking the time out to sit with us and share your wisdom and experience when it comes to hormonal health. I think this conversation will be valuable to so many people, even if not to only give permission to feel what we're feeling in terms of our experience when it, our experiences when it comes to hormonal health. Um, for anyone who'd like to find out further information about uh, Kay and what she's up to, you can ho- head over to you can head over to our podcast page on bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's been great. Thank you for listening to the BBC Good Food Health Podcast. For more information, visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.